Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to you in the north. Well, the last few weeks have been quite significant for, for our church and our family. From thousands of people coming and hearing the good news of Jesus on Christmas Eve to last week, uh, Dave and I getting up here and the launch of a new website and the announcement of a new site, and uh, down in this site in Ajax, the construction on one-third of this building. There is so much going on in our community, and that doesn't even tell the hundreds of stories of people meeting Jesus, coming to church for the first time. We're hearing amazing stories on a Christmas Eve. People, this was their very first experience ever in a church building in their life, hearing the good news of Jesus. And so we're so pleased for that. And as we enter back into the book of Acts, I love how God works this out. I love God's timing because now in the book of Acts, there is actually a shift to actually where we need to learn and grow as a community right on time. See, now in the book of Acts, what begins to take place is God begins to systematically reach out to multiple groups of people that have never heard the good news of Jesus. And why is this important for us as a church? Because in this time of great growth and expansion, in this actual time, this literal time, we as a church are walking together, what we are about to hear over the next five to six weeks, what we're going to learn, what we're going to be challenged into is the very lessons we need to learn as God continually introduces us to multiple groups of people that have never experienced Jesus before. This is a sovereign decision by our God to speak to this church. And so I'm going to plead with you as one of your pastors to lean in like you've never leaned in before, to hear and be open to the scriptures because God our Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit is about to teach us things we as a community must learn. We must be open to this because he is about to do among us and already is doing what we are literally reading in the book of Acts. We are about to walk in the book of Acts today in 2017 through these very stories. So if you are ready, get a Bible out and turn to Acts 8 and we're going to begin there. If you've been with us, you know that in the book of Acts, it's been a time of great growth. It's been a time of great change and crisis for the first church. Thousands of people have come to Jesus within weeks and months. The church was growing beyond belief. Thousands of baptisms had taken place. There was ethnic purity that was taking place in the sense they were reconciling with each other. There was loving the poor. And at the same time, they were being threatened and beating. Yet after more conversions and after more prayer meetings that changed the world, a shadow now begins to descend across the early church. The Jewish religious leaders of the day warned the first leaders not to preach and not to heal in the name of Jesus, or there would be consequences. The first one was a public scolding and a night in jail. Then later, as we read, before Christmas, all the leaders of the earth, early church were brought in before the Sanhedrin, and they were all publicly beaten and let go. But as we now enter back into the book of Acts, a red line has just been crossed. Stephen, a deacon one who was taking care of widows and orphans, has just been murdered by public stoning just for loving and preaching Jesus. A man named Saul is now going house to house, throwing Christians in jail. Now, in the middle of this terrifying situation, in the middle of crisis, in the middle of change, this is the very sovereign decision in time where the next great spirit move takes place again. And the Christian community, though it is young and early form, does not shrink back at all. 
See, crisis actually becomes the best time to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as Stephen's body was bashed and broken by hundreds of rocks, it says in Acts 8, 1, these words, Saul was there giving approval to his death. He witnessed this and said it was good. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, remember the math. We're now saying that there's at least 15,000 plus followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, and all but the 12 are now scattered. Now, the intended consequences of this attack, the murder of Stephen, did actually not produce what the Jewish leadership wanted. As they literally came and killed and attacked, the gospel now spreads to Judea and Samaria. See, the scattering of the very first Christians would lead to one of the most significant moves of what Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8. Remember what Jesus said just before he went to heaven to his followers, but you will receive power when the Spirit of God lightens upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Notice, in Jerusalem, check now, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, as we read this this morning in comfort, whether you're up in a high school in Port Perry or down here in this church building or somewhere else online, let us not forget that this is history, but it's real history. This is not myth. This is not a good novel. This is not hyperbole. This is not some action film where no one's getting hurt and they say cut and everyone goes away fine. No, no, this great move of God cost much. A man has just been publicly murdered for loving Jesus. It says in verse 2 that godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. I don't know if you've ever seen a public stoning before. They've actually been online lately because of what we're seeing in the Middle East. They're horrific and they're violent and they're dangerous. The bloody, broken, disfigured body of Stephen would have been picked up by people just like you and laid to rest. This one who had given his life to helping widows survive. This one who had just preached the good news of Jesus. This one who had been gifted by Jesus, just like all of us sitting here, to love those who were lost, has now actually been murdered by the very leaders that supposedly represent the God he was serving. Our spiritual great-grandparents in secret gather, and they weep and they mourn the first great casualty in this unfolding spiritual war. Never forget Stephen is the first martyr. He is the first Christian who was killed just for being a Christian. But there's a difference in this part of the story. Unlike months earlier when Jesus had been executed, now the church firmly knows this is not the end because they had witnessed the physical resurrection of Jesus. And so though they mourn him, they know that Stephen is now in the presence of Jesus and they know though his life has been stolen from him and taken from him, just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, Stephen will be raised from the dead too. So they mourn, but they still have unnatural joy. They bury him. And this early group of Christians is now thrust back into the everyday, the normal. But normal is no longer normal because there is an added element of extreme danger. Verse 3 should haunt us. Saul began to destroy the church. Going house to house, he dragged off both men, notice it, and women. And started putting them in prison. Their normal reality was no longer normal. So much had changed. And make no mistake, by the way, things are very, very difficult, not just in that day, but in this day also. Do you know that right now, globally, our family, the Christian movement in all of its forms, do you know there's a hundred million Christians at this very moment that live in areas where persecution is real, is real, and it is normative? 
Right now, do you know that the killing of Christians is being done by ISIS at such a rate, now all non-religious organizations are formally calling it a religious genocide? Do you know that Christian communities that have been witnesses to Jesus for 2,000 years in the Middle East are on the verge of extinction? Do you know that 145,000 compassion-sponsored children in India right now could be losing their funding because the Hindu majority does not like that Compassion International not only deals with the physical and emotional needs of people, but they preach in Jesus' name? Do you know that last Easter in Pakistan, a person walked into a morning service on Easter morning and blew themselves up and 70 Christians were killed just for loving Jesus? Do you know last year in Burkina Faso, seven missionaries were killed by Al-Qaeda Africa? Do you know that in Russia, only within the last six months, there is a new law that has been passed that it is now against the law in all the territories that Russia owns and is involved in, that if you evangelize outside of a church building, you will now face jail time? Do you know that at this month, globally, every month, according to sources, 322 Christians are murdered every single month? Do you know that 214 church buildings and church properties are confiscated or destroyed every single month around the world? Do you know that 772 forms of violence, beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, and forced marriages are done according to open doors every single month? It was Pope Francis who stood up at Christmas time and said as he looked over Christian history, there had never been such a severe persecution against Christians as there is today, and he is correct. Now, as fear could grip our hearts and we could shrink back, we must go back back to the first church and see how they responded. We also must go back to times where people have faced this before and see how the Spirit of God inspired them. And it is the great words of the church father, Tertullian, that must ring true for us today. That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That when you kill one of us, seven more spring up. Why? Because when a seed dies, we know that in springtime, a tree can be produced from a small seed and hundreds and thousands can be affected. And so Stephen becomes the first in millions that would die just for loving the poor and preaching the name of Jesus. This is what happened in Acts 8.4. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word of God wherever they went. These Christians from all walks of life, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, women and men and children, they begin to share the faith, they begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever they not just went, ran. They were now refugees in their own country. They were beaten and driven for their homes just because they were followers of Jesus the Nazarene. And notice the profound understanding here. Instead of complaining and instead of becoming hopeless, instead of becoming possessed by bitterness, instead of accusing their enemies, they shared the good news to anyone and everyone that they came in contact. They viewed persecution as the gift of evangelism. And one of the men on the run was another person some of us know named Philip. And where Philip goes is so interesting. It says that Philip, verse 5, went down to a city in Samaria and he began to proclaim Christ there. Some of you know the significance of Samaria. Some of you don't. Why is it significant? Well, it's like moving from the fire to the frying pan for these first Christians. Why? Well, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Jews called Samaritans half-breeds and false teachers, and the feeling was mutual. 
The rift had a long history. When Solomon died, if you know your Old Testament, there was a civil war between the Jewish family, which resulted in two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Both of those nations were at war with each other, but eventually both of them were taken over by foreign powers. And those who were in the north who stayed in captivity began to intermarry with their Assyrian captors, and they became the Samaritan race. When other Jews who had been taken into captivity came back from their homeland, back to the homeland, they went to their half-cousins and said, would you help us rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah? And they said, absolutely not. Instead, they set up their own temple in the north, which later the Jews in the south set up and then destroyed. Samaritans so hated the Jews that they actually viewed the Romans as liberators. See, this is the worst type of family feud. You've got ethnic, religious, geographical hatred and historical unforgiveness. This is Rwanda. This is Ireland. This is what we see in Iraq between Sunni and Shiite. This is Serbian versus Croatian. This is hate upon hate upon hate upon hate. And Philip, who is now a Jewish Christian exile in his own land, goes to his blood enemies. And he goes and he shares the good news of Jesus. And what happens is so unexpected. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all played, paid close attention to what he said. With, with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, and there was great joy in that city. So they heard the good news of Jesus from a Jew. And they saw the work of Jesus, and they believed, and they had great joy. Now, I want you to stop, because I promised that this was going to begin to teach us how we need to be prepared to reach out in new ways. See, this is how Jesus worked. This is how the early church worked, and this is how we are called to work. Word and deed, proclamation and power, love gifts, word gifts, power gifts. See, there is so much for us to continue to learn. And, and let me just say this, almost all cultures globally at this moment, educated or not, they begin their conversations about spiritual things through spiritual power, not logic. And so most cultures open up themselves to spiritual forces through spiritual encounter, then thinking, not thinking, then spiritual encounter. And what we see here in Philip is one of the most significant ways to evangelize those who come from a non-Western background. Now, the joy that we begin is amazing to see. It takes root. There's this unexpected place of conversion. There is healings, and there's preachings, and there's deliverances, and a new group of people actually now join another group of blood enemies, and they become the family of God. But as this is all taking place, the unseen realm of darkness now begins to realize that this is a profound threat. And so they begin to organize in the unseen place to stop this incursion of God. Now we've talked about this before, but let me remind you again. In the book of Acts, there is a very simple pattern. That any single time that the good news of Jesus is introduced to a new family, to a new tribal group, a new ethnic group, into a new geography, there is always a demonic encounter. There is perpetually a turf war. And let me say again with authority this morning, as we step out into new geographical places, as we speak into new families, we should expect this because there is a fight that is real. 
The Bible teaches that Satan is the God of this world and the kingdom of God, starting with Jesus and now through his church, keeps pushing the kingdom of darkness back. And so let me say this again as we start our journey together in 2017. C4, make no mistake about this. There is a real systematic war over our community. There is a war over this church. Satan wants to destroy and divide this church and kill this church. There is a war over Durham region. There is a war over the GTA. There is a war over the world. It is not phony. It is absolutely absolutely real. Now, this is how the demonic change tactics. They turn and try to deal with this incursion by Philip this way. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in that same city, and he had amazed all the people of Samaria, not just that city. He boasted that he was someone great, And all the people, both high and low, gave their attention to him and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. Now this is actually a designation of divinity. I am godlike, Simon used to say. And by the way, his powers were real. And they probably even helped people. But they were demonic. By the way, let me just get this out of the way. This is not fake. This is not 1-800-CLEO at midnight. This is not sham. This is real. This man walks with supernatural power that is demonic, but the demonic power helps him do good things to deceive others. It says that they, that means Samaria, followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Not illusion, supernatural power. Now again, let's step back. This did not shock us. Most cultures, including many of ours, turn to those with spiritual power in times of crisis. We, if you are a Westerner, tend to be extremely arrogant and dismiss this as nothing but superstition, but the Bible takes this very seriously, and since the Bible is our authority, it is our lens, the ultimate supreme court for faith, life, and practice, we need a biblical worldview, not a secular one. And so this man actually had authority in his region. Back to the story of Luke. We move from demonic power now to something greater, good news that comes from Jesus, and people begin to move from Simon and his power to Philip and the power that actually fills Philip. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. So I want you to get this again. Stephen has just been murdered. Philip's running for his life. Where does he run? He runs to his blood enemies, and instead of hating them or spitting upon them, he shares the good news of Jesus. They become brothers and sisters when they believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, and this enemy begins to baptize them now in the name of Jesus. They put on the wedding ring, and all is amazing. And then to our shock, here's what happens next. Simon himself believed, and Simon was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw, and when the apostles in Jerusalem, who were in hiding, by the way, heard that Samaritans had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Okay, Peter, who was in charge of the church, John, who was Jesus' best friend, two of the most significant leaders in our history are undercover, wondering if they themselves are also going to be murdered. They hear that their blood enemies are now becoming friends in Jesus, and so they sneak out of an area of extreme persecution where the secret police are trying to take them down, and they go to their blood enemies to see if it is true that they themselves are receiving God. Now, 
When they arrived, they prayed for these Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they simply had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I need everyone to pay close attention. If you've been a Christian for a while, at this moment, you should be deeply confused. Because according to the Scriptures, Acts 2 says that right when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit, you're plunged into Jesus' Spirit. How does Jesus move into your heart? He moves into your heart when you say yes to Him and He puts His Spirit in you. That's called spirit baptism. Paul later, it says this in 1 Corinthians 12, anyone who believes in Jesus is baptized at conversion in the Spirit. Ephesians 1 says, if you've believed, elected, called, you've been sealed in the Spirit. And yet the Samaritans don't get the Holy Spirit when they believe on Jesus and they're baptized. Now, if you've grown up in other churches, you've heard pastors stand up and say, see, this is why you need a second experience. You get become a Christian first, you pray lots, you might speak in tongues, and then you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. No. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a conversion thing. So what's going on here? Is this a pattern for a more... No, no. Understand what God is doing. Follow the book of Acts. Hear the heartbeat of God the Father for all the nations. God did this on purpose. He chose not to give His Spirit. Why? Listen to what one scholar said. God intentionally withheld His Spirit. So the coming of Peter and John in order that the Samaritans might be seen to be fully incorporated into the community of Jerusalem Christians who had received the Spirit at Pentecost. See, this enforces God's goal to incorporate all people groups within his his family. He intentionally delays what is normal because he wants to, ready, deal with generations of racism, geographical hatred, religious hatred, And he knew that if he did not delay this, and the early church leaders did not affirm this, the church could be fragmented down these old horrific lines if there was not unity at the beginning. And so God steps in in a unique way and delays his spirit to bring unity to his family so the family of God would perpetually be forced to see that God had come for all the nations and we were going to have relatives from all backgrounds whether we want it or know it or not. Now, I also want to point this out this morning. Notice, this horrifically built barrier that stems thousands of years, that is so large, was not overcome with military power, was not overcome by a great politician, was not overcome with a therapist in a counseling session, or some deep religious moral ideal. This great barrier of human hatred and unforgiveness and unreconciliation was brought down by the good news of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this world like the good news of Jesus because Jesus can reconcile anybody. So in this moment, you have such a profound spirit move that even those who are involved in great occultism convert. But right during the great move of the Spirit, Satan counterattacks. This is like Ananias and Sapphira all over again. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of hands 
by the apostle. He offered the money. And he said, give me this ability also so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, don't get too angry at Simon. This is actually how he had learned to get spiritual power his whole life. You went and bought it. By the way, there's no difference today. Go to any witchcraft store today, black or white magic, and you'll see the same. You buy spells. You buy power. Go to chapters at this moment, right after this service, or Indigo, or Barnes & Noble if you're in the States, and go to any New Age self-help section or occult section, and you will see time and time again that on that side of the fence spiritually, even if you're going to help people, you buy things. You buy self-promotion. You buy power. But in our movement, we do not buy the power of God, and we do not buy the gifts of God They are sovereignly assigned, not for self-promotion, but for the blessing of others. Peter looks at this man with gifts, words of knowledge and others, and he says to him, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. I love what the translator J.B. Phillips in the 70s translated it like this, to hell with you and to hell with your money. You have no part to this ministry. The very idea of getting spiritual gifts or giving of the Holy Spirit other than a sovereign move of God is nothing but sin. Remember what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are the work of the one and same Holy Spirit and the Spirit gives them to each one just as what? He determines. By the way, this is not about Simon and his salvation. But this passage is pointing to something more insidious. Listen to how Peter keeps responding to Simon. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, and perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see. See, this is the spiritual gift, right? This is discernment and words of knowledge. I see that you are full of bitterness and you're captive to sin. You must go before the Lord because you've said yes to Jesus and you've even been baptized in his name. But you as a Christian need to ask forgiveness. You need to turn away from syncretism, this mixed worldview, this split-level Christianity and grow up. You are forbidden. There is no more mixing of Christian faith with pagan thought. No more mixing of spring water and salt water. You cannot drink that anymore. Now that phrase, full of bitterness, if you're a highlighter, underline, highlight it, circle it. Because you won't catch this in the English, but this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. And when you read the exact quote that Peter is actually bringing back, you will see what he's truly saying to Simon. It comes from Deuteronomy 18, and this is actually given to people who are in right relationship with God, but are about to themselves give into idolatry. It's given to people in faith, right faith, not people outside. It says, make sure there's no man or woman or clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of the nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. In the original language, that's the exact quote. He says, you cannot worship and kiss idols and demonic power and walk in the Spirit. You've said yes to Jesus. You must abandon one and fully be involved in the other. Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me that nothing you've said may happen to me. There's no suggestion here saying this man's cry was not real. And as we've already seen, if you've done the book of Acts with us, even those who are genuine followers of Jesus, Ananias and Sapphira, can give room to the devil in their heart and God still will judge them, not eternally in the sense of salvation, but in the now. Well, after this incursion 
was countered by now the apostles through the Spirit of God. They decide to go back to Jerusalem. Just let that sit for a bit. But it says that they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord. And as Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, they preached the gospel now in many Samaritan villages. Now, do you see the power of this story this morning? As we begin stepping out in 2017, number one, God's family has grown in the hardest of places during the hardest of times. The Samaritans have now been included in the people of God in generations of hate and distrust and violence and religious misunderstanding and slander have been overcome by the message and the power and the presence of the living Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And it starts during murder and persecution. Let me just say this. God always will use the injustice of this world and the persecution of this world and the pain of this world and the lost dreams that we experience and the wrong and the sickness of this world to bring the good news of Jesus to others. But as we sit here this morning with a passage like this, and we're now keenly aware that God is actually choosing to bring this group of passages to us for a reason, specifically in this season, what truly is the Spirit of God saying to see for? Well, here's the first thing that I cannot escape, not just because it comes out of the passage appropriately, but because I genuinely believe the Spirit is saying this to this church. God wants to bring people that you dislike the most to this church to be our family. C4, we must be ready for God to continue to send people to us that we hate, that we do not like, that we mistrust, and we must be ready to see them become our brothers and sisters. You who are police officers among us, let me say this to you. There are going to be people you have arrested that are going to show up in this church and become your brother and sister. Are you ready? Some of you actually are the people who are put in jail or will be, and they're going to come and you're going to see the police officer that arrested you, and now they're your brother and sister. Are you ready? All of us in this room, all of us, no matter our skin color, wrestle with racism. Let's just put it on the table in small or large ways. There always are ethnic groups we don't truly like or distrust. Or we Listen, God's going to bring all the nations to this church. Are we ready? What about your family member you cannot stand? You cannot stand them. See, God tends to go after those we don't like the most. And suddenly, the grace of God is so poured out on them that we must reevaluate if we truly love Christ. As we step out into multiple sites, both east and west, as we become more multicultural, and we've already begun to see this more and more, I just want to say one of the greatest evidences of the Holy Spirit's work among us is when larger amounts of people start coming to this church from all backgrounds, and many of us will actually see people we do not like or enemies become family through Jesus and His Spirit. See, church history teaches us something. Real revivals heal unhealable things. Real revival overcome the largest of barriers found in any society real moves of the spirit bring enemies and make them family and we can take communion to each other with each other with absolute joy because we've both experienced the work of jesus and this is the posture we now must choose elders this is for you pastors and leaders this is for us for all of us we must be like peter and john willing to humble ourselves and go to those we have slandered and hated and mistrust for generations and put our hands on them and say you are now my brother you are now 
Now, my sister, we are found in Jesus, Spirit of God. Do all you must because we want to see all people come to Christ. We cry out for revival. The implication of revival is the Samaritans are coming. Here's the second thing we need to understand. We see this in the passage. The Spirit of God is at the center of unnatural work. And so once again, and we start this year, oh, how we must be so open to the Spirit of God and say, without you, we can do nothing, not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, what's the culture difference between then and now? There is no culture difference behind all their everyday stuff and their life and their technology and behind all our technology and all our science and all our stuff. The average person during times of crisis still is involved in supernatural experiences that are wicked. Tarot cards, psychic readings, crystals, new age, witchcraft, horoscopes, Satanism, Ouija boards, reincarnation readings, ghosts, haunted houses, levitation, palm readings, seances, tea leaves, water, like water witching, Reiki power, numerology, idols bought from Pier 1, magic eight balls, astrology, the amount of crap, and I mean that appropriately, that we watch the extreme horror and torture and mutilation of people in movies, secret societies that call on oaths, but have nothing to do with Jesus. And then, of course, because I love this, even in our country, because we have the world here, they bring all their supernatural stuff. Listen, the scriptures have never changed. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. But we're not afraid of any of this. God wants us to reach out to all of these people too. God wants to save Simon among us. God wants to save the Samaritans among us. But let me just say this again. This is why this church must perpetually place themselves in the Father's presence and the Son's presence asking for the unusual work of the Spirit because we need power in our life and we need power in our evangelism and we need all the spiritual gifts because without all the spiritual gifts, we will not be able to reach a culture that is both technologically, materialistically, spiritual all at the same time. There is a great spiritual war taking place and that is why we need to continually say, God, if there's a turf war going on in Port Perry, and there is, by the way, if there's a turf war going on in Durham, which there is, if there's a turf war in my family or in my friendship circle because no one's coming to Christ, send the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the character of the Spirit in ways we've never seen so they also can become followers followers of Jesus too. We need a prayer life that includes this war where we say, oh spirit come, and we need not only your character and your conviction and your spiritual gifts among us and your moving, we need the spirit of God's greatest gift to humanity, his unblinding power so our neighbors and our friends and our enemies can actually see Jesus for who he is and embrace him. And this needs to be the prayer life of our church. This is why we're so serious about character in this church. This is why we're so serious about all the spiritual gifts in this church. Because we don't get to grow as a movement without the unique, ongoing, supernatural power of the Spirit. So our cry, whether you're bored of praying or not, is, oh, Spirit of God, keep moving. Because if you don't move, everyone remains blind. So number one, we got to get ready for the Samaritans to come. And number two, we need to continually rely on the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and interwork with each other because we have different gifts. We need to keep asking the Spirit of God to do things that we have never seen. 
But the real thing that the Spirit of Jesus wants to say to C4 as we start our year is this. Jesus wants this church to be more free so the Spirit isn't grieved. See, everyone's got to lean into this. What I'm about to preach next is not just a slap or a rebuke. No, this is given to us so we can actually accomplish the things I've just said. The ongoing problem, not just in C4, but in all churches, is this. It's blended Christianity. See, the story of Simon is not far away from any of us. It's compromised. Knowingly or not, we become indifferent to wrong. It's split-level Christianity. It's syncretism, one of the greatest threats to the church. So here's the question. How does this compromise look among us? A friend of mine in California, a scholar, wrote this. Most Christians live on two unreconciled levels. They're members of a church like C4. They ascribe to some doctrine statements that are true. But below that system of conscious belief are deeply embedded traditions and customs implying quite a different interpretation of the universe than a Christian one. And in times of crisis, the doctrine of the church and the belief of the church and the rights of the church suddenly become an alien thing to the Christian. So where is Simon lurking among us? There are five places. Here's the first one. The first form of blended Christianity that is found in all churches, including this one, is Christian faith without God's power. We say all that supernatural stuff was history. We shouldn't expect God to move like that anymore. That's only in the Bible. This is Christianity with no power. It's science and the physical have hijacked the scriptures. It either removes all the miraculous as myth or says that was great then, but it's not for today. Or here's the big one, and it is a statement of fear. I hear it in pastors all the time. It cannot be true because I have not experienced it. Oh. Rationalism holds more authority than this. Many of us sitting in this church are more like atheists. We believe all the right things and we're going to heaven, but we do not expect the living God to intervene at all. That is Simon. The second has to do with our view of Jesus and his unique work. You cannot reduce Jesus to who you want him to be. He's not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, not just a profound thinker. You cannot reduce him to your version of love. He is holy love. You must hold true to the fast to the truth that Jesus is fully human and fully God, that he's the only incarnation in all of human history of God. He's the only one who can forgive sins, that he died and he physically rose again, that he's the only path, the only road, the only door. There is no other way to meet God except through Jesus' his son. Only Jesus' work can make you right before a holy God. There's no one else who can forgive sins. He's the only one when we die that we will face judgment. As Peter preached in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else There's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. If you start teaching that there are other doors or other ways or Jesus is not exclusive, Simon is in your house. It's blended Christianity. You neuter the gospel. The third one has to do with sexual conduct. We're married to Jesus if you're a Christian. We are in covenant with Jesus. And how we deal with our thinking and our bodies matter. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm not talking about temptation, or as I've preached before, I'm not talking about inclination. See, for us who are Christians, struggle and orientation and temptation, though significant, needing significant conversation, is not the real issue for a follower of Christ. It is when we justify or affirm or act out sexually against what the Bible is clear about and believe that God's just going to be fine with us. 
I'm talking about justifying sexual acts that Jesus, our King, who, by the way, His Spirit wrote this book from Genesis to Revelation. This is Jesus' book. You cannot divide Jesus from His book. He has said, no. You as a Christian may never justify for others or yourself acts that the Bible are clear on. You will know that you've started to cross into the line of compromise when you start saying, well, God would never deny my natural desires. Or I don't need to explain myself to you or anyone else. Or God made me this way, so it must be okay. Or as long as we're consenting, it's okay. Or if it's not hurting anyone. Well, that may be the foundational worldview of our culture. It may be the glasses of our culture, but for we who are slaves to Jesus Christ, for we who've experienced the great love of Jesus Christ, we cannot hold that view any longer. That is split-level, syncretistic Christianity. It is saying that what we feel, what we are inclined to, or what we want has more authority than what the Bible teaches. Sexuality is a matter of worship. It is a matter of truth. It's a matter of authority. You will test how much you believe Jesus has inspired this book on this issue. And our scriptures are clear about where God's lines are. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul, writing to the most sexualized version of his culture in his day, said to Christians, not to the whole community, to Christians, flee from sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality is the word pornea, where we get our word pornography from. It is any sexual act outside of a heterosexual God-ordained marriage. That's what it means in the dictionary. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know, Christian? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God. You are not your own. Rights do not exist in our movement. You've been bought by a price, therefore honor God with your body. See, Simon says no power, and Simon says there are many ways, and Simon says you are king. And that also brings us to our fourth version of it, our view of ownership and materialism. We live in a world where material prosperity and individualism and human rights are king. Now, that's actually quite good. And are we allowed to have a good life? Of course we are. Are we allowed to buy things? Of course we are. It's not wrong to actually own things. But here's the question. Do you own your things or do your things own you? You know, well, Simon is coming close when you've never asked God, what do you want to do with my family, with my RSPs, with my stuff, with my house? Like, what do you want to do? One wrote, self-possession, not demon possession, is the great danger facing human beings. It is hard for all Christians to move from feeling they need to be in control of their lives to entrusting them completely to God's mercy and His will. Ownership. Here's the last one. Our view of supernatural practices. F.F. Bruce, that great British scholar thinking about Simon, wrote these words. He said, the problem with Simon is though he had believed the right message and been baptized, the poisonous root of superstition and self-seeking had not been eradicated yet from his heart. His soul was still held fast in the fetters of unrighteousness. For some of you gathering here today that think that you can have the best of both supernatural worlds, you'll have the worst of both. You cannot mix our faith with Buddhism. You cannot do it. You cannot be involved in Christianity and New Age practices. You cannot read your Bible and talk to a spirit guide. You cannot walk and do a Beth Moore study and then go to a fortune teller. You just cannot do these things. Paul, writing to that same church in 1 Corinthians, did it best. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I don't want you to participate with demons. By the way, this is written to a church. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord, which, by the way, we're about to do here today, and the cup of demons too. 
You cannot actually have both part in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are you stronger than him? Here's what I want to bring home. We've been on a journey for a long time as a church. And for us who have been on it for a while, we've seen God continually do things that amaze us. And as we're moving forward into this new year, this great sense as we expand out and God is preparing so many more people as this, he is going to change the very fabric of this church by the more people he's about to bring. The 10,000 are going to look so diverse and we need to be ready. We have been growing as leaders and you as the people more and more understanding our need of the Spirit. But the challenge as we start our year is not a slap in the face, but Jesus coming and saying, you, you, there doesn't need to be that Simon temptation among any of us. Because when we lay that stuff down and we work that stuff out and we surrender to Christ and things get free, then the Spirit of God isn't grieved and great work happens and joy happens and evangelism happens. And so the Lord starts our year by saying, very simply, is there anything where you are trying to drink salt water and spring water at the same time? Is it that you don't believe in God's power and you're fear-based? Then you need to repent. You just say, Lord, sorry, change me. You know, are, are you the person, even as a Christian, who themselves are justifying sexual things or justifying it in others and saying, and, and the scriptures are, repent. Do not, no, there is no room. You are not your own. There's great joy when we worship Christ, even in our suffering. What about the uniqueness of the gospel? What about your ownership of your stuff? Or what about some of you maybe practicing supernatural things God has asked you not to do or you've just realized are not of him? God comes and says, I would like actually repentance and life change so there can be freedom. So this is a, a, a very appropriate time to just start our New Year's this way. So would you just bow your heads with me no matter who you are, no matter where you're at. And pray these things with me. Number one, Lord, thank you that you are about to bring so many people to this church that aren't like me. And we pray, God, you'd begin to prepare our hearts for those you have brought or you're about to bring so we'll be ready and open. Lord, we pray for enemies and friends and family to come to Christ. Number two, we pray again as we start this year again. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So church, could you say, Holy Spirit, come. Could you say that out loud? Just Holy Spirit, come. We need the Spirit of God across our whole church. And lastly, Lord, thinking about no one in my mind, only in myself, Holy Spirit, would you now begin to convict any place where we're committing almost this act of simony, where we're blending two worlds. And you've said no. Jesus, forgive us and set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How appropriate, at least at this site now, where we move to the Lord's table. It's going to be passed to you today. By the way, ushers, you can get ready. We all know in this church that 
The Lord's table is practiced by millions of Christians today. Some call it Eucharist, some call it communion. But this is where we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. That we've been forgiven, that we're loved, that we have eternal life, that one day we'll eat with him. We're told to confess our sins before we take it. We're told to reconcile with people if we need to. But this is a moment where we get to, as a church, thank Jesus that he saved us, confess our sins, pray for great new things. But because of what I've just preached, this is also the time where you need to say, I can only participate with the cup of the Lord and no longer the cup of demons. So as you take this, let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you. But no matter what you pray, say thank you, Christ, for dying for our sins and make me a friend. And so you can take it anytime you want. Let me just pray over it now. Jesus, would you bless these elements, though they are just elements. They symbolize your death, resurrection, your sacrifice, our hope, everything that we are. Would you meet us in this time of communion in Jesus' name? Amen. One last thing. If you're not a Christian yet, would you not take this? just because it does not symbolize the one that you've actually, you've not embraced yet. And again, all Christians are welcome to this, unless, of course, you're on the run and you don't want to deal with Christ. But, like, just come to the table, repent, pray for power, and let's see what Jesus does among us. Let's participate together.